0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, is facial recognition technology, which is being used for some candidate voting situations with the Liberal Party, is facial recognition technology a good idea in Canada? We'll talk about it. We're also going to talk about the redoing, the redevelopment, the rebuilding of First Ontario Centre. It's about to be redone. What's it going to look like? Jasper Kajavski, the guy who's in charge, is going to join us to talk about it. Stick around today on the scott radley show on 900 chml political parties as you may know are beginning to gear up for what a lot are expecting is going to be a fall election that is that seems to be the way things are going and if it isn't there's going to be an awful lot of political parties with a lot of candidates locked in early saying well when's the election because everyone's kind of thinking now it was remember it was going to be summer and then covid and that seemed like a really bad idea so it all got pushed back so everyone expects it's going to be the fall well as part of the process of getting candidates, one party, the Liberal Party, is now using facial recognition technology as part of its process to select those candidates, not to choose the candidates. It's not using somehow some algorithm that would look at the face of a candidate and go, that person's particularly attractive. Let's, no, not like that. It's to ensure that the people who are eligible to help select those people get a ballot and others don't. Now, not everybody is excited about this. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association president, Michael Bryant, has argued against it recently, saying, and here's a quote, facial fingerprinting is the wrong tool right now in Canada. I want to bring in Brenda McPhail. She is with, she's the director of privacy technology and surveillance with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Brenda, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Uh, Let's start with Michael Bryant's quote there. Why is it the wrong time? What is the objection to the idea of facial facial recognition or facial fingerprinting?
1: Well, there's three big reasons why it's absolutely not the right time that the Liberal Party should be using this technology. First of all, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada has done three big investigations in the last year or so. The most recent just came out a couple of weeks ago, and every single time he's identified problems with the invasiveness of the technology, whether or not it's necessary to use it, and whether or not it can be compliant with Canadian privacy law. Uh, Second reason, um, it's an inherently discriminatory technology. It's a technology that we know recognizes white faces best, black faces worst, and faces of colors other than white um, in various degrees of badness. Um, It's worse on women than men. It's worse on young people than middle-aged people. Um, Not all of these facial recognition programs are the same, but certainly for a democratic process like voting, it's really important to know that the technology that's being used is fair to people of all colors and all genders. And then the last reason is that political parties are actually not appropriately included in privacy law. So those laws that the privacy commissioner reviewed in relation to the technology and said they're not good enough, they're not strong enough, and the technology isn't complying with the law, political parties aren't even covered by that law.
0: Uh, to the la- let's go to the last point first, just so I understand. So if they're not covered, but it w- because political parties are essentially a private entity of sorts... It's not really a public thing could they not do this and be excluded from all those laws and, re- and rules?
1: Well so in Canada um, we have a private sector privacy law a federal private sector law um, that makes sure that when companies or businesses or other private part- private sector, organizations are using our information, um, that there are rules, that there's limits to how much they can collect and what they can do with it, and their uses have to be fair, and they have to tell us what they are. They need to get our consent. So it's not that other private parties aren't governed by law. They actually absolutely are. Uh, The problem is that political parties um, aren't explicitly or appropriately included in that law.
0: Uh, For the record, by the way, I'm told that uh, one of the writings that will be using this is Flamborough-Glanbrook. Um, don't know if that's true, but I, I've heard that that is one of the areas where this will be done to, for the candidate selection. I, I, I was wondering when I heard this, though, that surely a driver's license or a photo ID would work. I, I, I find it hard to believe that here in Canada, here in Ontario, there is so much voter fraud going on that we need to go to this extreme end of the spectrum. What, what am I missing?
1: Well, I don't think you're missing anything. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, and In fact, that's what we argue, that there's really no demonstrable need to be using this really controversial technology. Um, And in fact, if you look on the Liberal Party website, they do actually offer voters um, two options. They can use this facial recognition program. Um, Or they can go on a Zoom call with a person and show their ID and that person can, you know, look at the ID and look at their face just the way they would do if they were doing it on purpose. Because remember, because of COVID, this is all happening online. Um, But, I mean, the mere fact that they have that manual process shows that they don't need the other one. They don't need to be using this controversial and potentially discriminatory software.
0: Yeah, as I say, I just, I, I mean, I haven't heard of many cases of voter fraud in this country. And I'm sure it happens. I'm not naive. I'm sure that people have filed more than one ballot or snuck into someone else. I'm sure that's happened, but we never, I don't believe that it's so widespread that suddenly we need to go to the extreme for this kind of thing. Um, and and by the way, I should mention, it does seem kind of ironic to me. Uh, now I know we're in Canada and I'm talking about the States, but in the States, small L liberals in the democratic party are arguing that we should have no ID needed to be able to vote, and here our small L or capital L liberals are saying we need facial recognition technology, which is the 180 degree opposite. It seems like we can't really agree on what the right way is to vote. Yeah. I know they're American. I mean, but. of
1: course. I mean, our democracy is precious and important. Uh, we of want course. our voting processes to be fair. We want them to have integrity. Um, but uh, the question is: Is this the right technology to to make that happen? And at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, we say no, absolutely not. It is the wrong technology at the wrong time.
0: Is it is it being widely used other than in this particular uh, way with the, with the liberals in the voting in this country so, right now?
1: As far as we know, um, you know, every political party is currently doing the going through this same nomination race voting process. Um, to the best of our ability to discern only the Liberal Party of Canada is using this technology for for their internal voting processes. Sort of more broadly in society, um the most recent uh, uses of this technology that sort of hit the news was when the, Uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police and other police forces across Canada were experimenting with a different kind of facial recognition technology. Um, And in fact, the RCMP use was the subject of that report by the Privacy Commissioner that I mentioned earlier, where they basically said um, the technology itself collected people's information illegally and the RCMP shouldn't be using an illegal technology.
0: And I think where this gets concerning in this particular case is that if one of our political parties in this country think that this is good for them, I think we can extrapolate that somehow they would at some point think that it's good for us too. If it's good enough for them, why would it not be good enough for the rest of the country for security reasons?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the reasons why the CCLA felt it was necessary to to bring this information forward into the public and start this conversation. We're really concerned that you know, with the Liberal Party of Canada, who are, of course, right now, the governing party in our country um, are using this, then they're setting a really dangerous precedent. Um, and municipalities and provinces and, and, you know, and up to and including in a federal election might think, well, you know, it's been, the Liberal Party thought it was okay. Maybe it's okay for us too. Maybe this is a good idea for voter ID.
0: You've, you've touched on it earlier, but I'm going to ask again, because we see this in stores. Certainly, if you go into a store, there's going to be cameras and some of them would use technology like this. Is there a difference though, in your mind between a store or a private business using this technology and the public agencies using this technology? Because I suppose, uh, you know, you don't have to go into a store, but it's pretty hard to live your life without ever going out in public.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, the privacy risks, and the risks of discrimination if the technology you know, fails to identify or, or misidentifies you differ depending on the kind of technology they're using and what they're using it for. Um, but all uses of facial recognition technology right now suffer from some of the same flaws. One is it's always going to be inherently invasive to be identified when you move around, whether you're in a store, which is like a quasi-public place, or whether you're on a street, which is a public place. Um, As Canadians, we expect to be able to walk around and mind our own business and not be monitored um, if we're not doing anything wrong, and facial and not be identified if we're not doing anything wrong, and facial recognition has the potential uh, to turn that assumption on its head. Um, So that's a problem. The other issue is... um, whether it's a, a public body or a private body doing it, um, we just don't have the right laws to make sure that they're they're not going to abuse mm. the the really powerful tool that facial recognition is.
0: And you know, look, I I don't want to overstate this. I, I watched a documentary or a show or something a while back about what was happening to the Uyghur people in China, and I mean they live in a world where. Literally, the moment you step out the door of their house, they are being tracked by facial recognition technology. They can't go and and they're on a a point system, basically. Now, that's the extremest of the extreme ends. I'm not proposing that we're going to be heading down that path anytime soon. But it certainly does show when you crack the door. I don't know if we're moving towards something like that, but that extreme end certainly makes you nervous of what could happen or what could be waiting for you, even if it was only half of that or a quarter of that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, one thing we know about technology is once somebody starts using it for one thing, there's going to be function creep. Somebody else is going to say, hey, oh, it Mm -hmm. works for that. Let's use it for this. Hey, it works to identify this person in my store. Let's Let's have police use it to identify all the people at this corner and uh if it, it works for um yeah so it's i've i've lost my example there I've well no but example if, in my head
0: but if that's the case and i think you're right i think we can look to many examples where we talk what was the what was the phrase you just used uh, about the how it creeps on in technology creep or you know where where we take one thing and then it pushes to the next and the next why are some of us eagerly racing towards this technology like that? Because we, we know that's what happens with all these things.
1: We should know. Um, but I think it's also very alluring. I mean, the people who create this, the vendors who design this technology um, do so because they want to sell it because there are buckets of money in selling this technology and the more people they can sell it to for the more uses, the more money there is. Um, so there's a lot of dazzle and promise And rhetoric that's wrapped around these technologies. And it can be really hard if you're not super attuned to the risks to fight your way through all of that, you know, glitter and get to the core, which is, you know, this is an invasive technology that is deeply harmful to privacy and fundamentally discriminatory.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And not necessarily immediately. I mean, this is, this is why it is because I probably, there are people listening right now, Brenda, I guarantee there are people listening right now saying you two are both panicking and you two are (laughs) both being, uh, you know, over the top and they're not going to fall. Not today. I don't mean that, but I, I agree with you on the idea that, you, that we become comfortable with this and then it gets pushed a little more and then it gets pushed a little more. I agree wholeheartedly with that concept that the, 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 whole, the, the troubles of this don't necessarily appear right off the bat. It's what comes years down the road.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, right now, it's kind of cool to wear a Fitbit and see how many steps you walk. Um, you know, now that insur- insurers, insurance companies know that we do that. Um, they're thinking, hey, wouldn't you like to share that information with us? We'll even give you the Fitbit. Um, And then we can adjust your premiums based on how healthy you are, judging by how many steps you walk. Um, And then the next step could be, well, if you don't want to wear the Fitbit and let us have the data, we're not going to insure you. That's the way the creep happens. It's here's something fun. Here's a privilege we'll give you. Oh, wait, now we're going to turn it into a punishment. Um, And and we can see that pattern in different kinds of technologies. And we, I think we do need to take this technology seriously, um, because if it creeps, the end result, um, as you mentioned, with the Uyghurs in China, um, we've, we have an example in the world of what that endpoint could look like. Um, and it's um, nice Unpleasant. to think that it wouldn't happen here, yeah. uh, but I'm not sure that we can promise ourselves that.
0: Brendan Mc, uh, McPhail, the Director of Privacy, Technology, and Surveillance for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Very much appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. My next guest, uh, he is a partner with the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group. That is the consortium that has been given the opportunity to rebuild or build up or redevelop the downtown entertainment facilities, the art gallery, the convention center, the Concert Hall, First Ontario Concert Hall, and First Ontario Centre, the arena. And this is one of those projects that, um, you know, it, it's one of those projects that had people a little bit concerned at first. It was an interesting idea when it was brought up by Sam Marula way, way back. I think on my show was the first time it ever came up. And then it got some traction and then it got to city council and there were other opt. there were people who were wanting to do this. Well, now, you know, we've got this thing, this ball that is rolling. And the idea is going to be that, One of these years before too long, we are going to have a different looking downtown. Well, just before I bring him in, I'll say this. Of all the questions, I mean, like, I suppose a lot of people are interested in what the art gallery might look like and what the concert hall might look like and how the convention center might be different and all the other stuff. Never get more questions, especially as a guy who writes sports some of the time as well. I never get more questions than, well, what the heck is the arena going to look like? What's, I mean, what's it going to be? Jasper Kajowski, as I say, is a partner with the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group. He is also the director of that arena redevelopment project,
2: and he joins us now. Jasper, thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you very much, Scott. And just before we get into it, I hope you don't mind if I take a quick second. Just to thank you for the column uh, that you wrote about your dad. Um, Always tough to say goodbye, but that was really, really inspiring. And uh, while loss is always difficult, uh, I think everybody, I know our group, And I think all of your listeners and everybody that read that thanks you for sharing that.
0: Well, I appreciate that, Jasper. Thank you. Uh, Very nice. Um, Let us get to, and it sounds like it's a hard hard segue to make, but let's get back to the arena for a moment here. This is, before we get into what's going to happen with the arena, um, for people who don't remember, your name might be familiar to some people, A, because you've run for office, but more than that, because five or six years ago, you were the guy who was involved with a commissioning a study to look at the arena and figure out what the possibilities might be. That's and right. so you understand the shape this building is in. What kind of state is First Ontario Centre in right now?
2: The arena is in much... It, it, obviously, it's tired, and it needs to be revamped, but the bones are strong. And that goes back to the original construction uh, just before it opened in 1985. It's a it's solid... It has. Uh, it, it was. It's. It's one of those arenas that was post uh, Maple Leaf Gardens or the Montreal Forum, which were essentially boxes built at street level. It was one of the arenas that had a, a, a dugout bowl. So a lot of the uh, initial concepts of what would lead to a major league arena were all there, but it was at an earlier stage of development of these type of facilities. So the the canvas that was left behind for a major renovation was extremely impressive. And now we, we're we very confident that we'll be in a position to deliver that.
0: So when you're talking about the money and we can get into the money in a few minutes yeah. here about what it might cost, when we get into that, are you confident that most of the money can go into what we will call aesthetics or, or things that people are going to see as opposed to having to re-firm things up and fix structures and all the rest?
2: Yeah, th- there's an enormous amount of space that's going to be built out and we're really confident that we have a strong team to do that because uh, because you mentioned what happened years ago. In, in 2015, I was committed to having the renovation of, uh, of the uh, Coliseum of First Ontario Centre become the arena project. I believed in it. So I went out and I raised money from a number of different groups, and it's those groups that have now built into what has become QPEG, so, for example, the, it's now a Carmen's-led entity. Carmen's was one of the initial uh, funders of the Arena Renovation Study, and now uh, that team is building out. So not only, I know you know PJ very well, but Joe Mercanti, COO of the Carmen's Group, uh, is one of the managing partners, together with PJ and myself, and then new investors, uh, Sam Mercanti, uh, who is well-known for Carstar, Vaccarello Investments, as well as trusted advisors like Dennis Concordi and Fred Buzzelli are all part of the team that's leading this now stronger consortium that eventually got to the point where we were able to compete for and be successful to get the, the confidence of the city uh, to take on this task. If you would just give me a second also, a quick shout-out. I just think it's really warranted to the city negotiators who did this, led by uh, Ryan McHugh with Ray Kessler, Aldor, Andrews Newsom, They worked very hard to protect the interests of the city, to protect the taxpayers. Uh, They were long negotiations, tough negotiations. But at the end, we end up with a strong deal for everybody. And I think that the taxpayers of Hamilton are going to be very proud and very happy with what is eventually delivered out of this.
0: I know that you have, and the and the consortium. I know that Hugh as as it's known, um, that the idea is that the corner of York and Bay is going to be a destination place. But the main thing, when when this arena gets redone, and people can look online and see the artist conceptions and stuff for the the aesthetic, the visual of what it might look like, but it's hard to see from those pictures what's actually. What what they're actually looking at? Your idea would be that the York Street side, across from the Salvation Army, that area, that's going to be where the biggest amount of stuff happens. What's going to happen on York Street?
2: There's going to be an an, York uh, Boulevard. We think is going to be a serious amount of activation because of the fact that there's so much unused space. That entire street level retail space that you referenced in the article that you wrote in the spec which is about three-quarters of the space that wraps all the way around the building, save for where the current Bulldogs' offices are, the main entrance and the box office, is space that no one has ever seen. All of that is going to be built out. So it'll be open to the street. It can become restaurants, sports lounges, a number of different uh, activations that we're currently investigating. And one of the things that's very, very exciting is the fact that When you have architects like Brisbane Brook Bainan, who have known this building for a long time, BBB, internationally renowned, renovated uh, Madison Square Garden, transformed it. And there are lead architects. And then with regards to the precinct, because you talk about York Boulevard, having uh, David Premi Architects, DPAI, as our lead local coordinating architect for what we want to do with regards to the lands in the area of York and Bay, we think that the the team put together is going to be able to assemble a very exciting plan that takes an area that right now is not anywhere near what it could be. And once it's fully built out, this precinct is going to become like a, like a new exciting distillery district for the city of Hamilton.
0: Something you just said there. And I think a lot of people are surprised by this. And in fact, I'm surprised by this as well. There is, Tons of space in First Ontario Centre, once Cops Coliseum, that has never really been used—at least, you know, maybe for storage, but never for its intended purpose. Why, why has, why was, why is there so much space that has been hidden from public view for so long?
2: Once you, because when the arena was originally built, because it's not street level from the perspective of of event level. Like if you remember, if you went into Ma, to uh, Maple Leaf Gardens, you walked in at ice level. This is a dugout bowl. So, event level is below ground. And because you have between 24 and 26 uh, um, seat levels, um, rows, as you go up to the main concourse level, that left an enormous amount of space at street level that was not activated. And because the concept was that everybody would either go into the upper bowl or the lower bowl from the same basic concourse level. So, because it was dug out, it left all of that street level space unactivated well that's about to change and so it's it's some of it is good luck like it there was always a concept when the when the building was originally designed that one day that space would be used it just never happened and now it it is going to happen so it's it's a it's a great opportunity to be able to almost create in many cases a building within a building because the space doesn't have to be created from scratch. And that's an enormous saving in terms of the pouring of concrete, like concrete's expensive, uh, Scott. And a lot of the concrete that's required to create the space that is going to be built out is already there. That's why I've always believed that the renovation of this arena was the best project because it's in the right place, downtown Hamilton. That's where it should be in my view. And secondly, because the bones are so strong, there was the opportunity to work with that, to create something very, very compelling.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think people will be shocked. Honestly, if, if, if this all comes together, like you've talked about, and some of the places that have been hidden from view for so long, suddenly become available. I think people are going to be shocked by how much space there is. There are entrances to the arena from Jackson square that have been blocked off forever. There's entrances through the ticket area that have been blocked off forever. There are, yep. you know, places that have been used as storage. I mean, it's it, I've been in some of these corners of the building, not all. And I've always been stunned by the fact that there's so much room that's being nothing done with it. And if, if you right. can somehow pull it off, boy oh boy, you 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 have some opportunities there for sure. So all right, so yep. the, the York Boulevard side will be restaurants, will be stores, will be what and that that would run the entire length pretty much of York Boulevard. And you, as I understand it, your idea is that they would be available from the street if there's no event on or from the arena side if there is, but you're imagining that these will punch right through into the bowl, perhaps.
2: That's right. When you when you walk into that under into that retail space, which as I said, most people have just never seen and wouldn't even really imagine was there.
0: And, and sorry, can I just stop here one sec? For sure. those who can't quite visualize this, if you've ever been to First Ontario Center, imagine when you leave, you're coming down those stairs. There's tons of okay. stairs pouring out onto York Boulevard. That's what we're talking about. Right. They'll all be gone.
2: It's all underneath those stairs. Exactly. So just picture that you're walking along York Boulevard and you look through where there are some openings you can see through and you just see the stairs going straight up. If those stairs are gone and you walk right through, you're walking into a spot that's exactly halfway uh, up the lower bowl. And if you punch uh, what are called vomitories or those entrances that take you out into the seating area, you can you can literally walk right into the into the lower bowl and those are things that can either be closed off with temporary seating. And then opened up if you want to be able to access the seating bowl for events. So it's a remarkably uh, flexible design that was uh, that was originally created when the building was uh, originally built.
0: We're talking about space that has not been used. Um... Another space that has rarely been used in the building, weirdly enough, and if anyone's gone down to get their shot lately, they will be familiar with it because it's being used for that. The the bottom floor of the building has amazingly stayed empty and unused for much of the time that that building has been used. Can you use that for something?
2: Absolutely. That's what's commonly referred to as the beer gardens on the north side of the building at the event level. There are a lot of advantages. I mean, it has been used certainly when, when the when the, the, the first twelve rows of seats which are retractable come out on the north side in the lower bowl. So there's there's opportunities for trade space and it's been used for that on occasion. But at the same time, there's that's that's not happening often enough as you would like in terms of activation. And so we're in conversations with uh you know Michael Andelauer and the Bulldogs. Uh, we're also now welcoming the Toronto Rock. The Rock are going to be in the Hammer and the, and the Honey Badgers, our basketball team. And there may be an opportunity. There's, there's discussion about the potential reorientation of where dressing rooms are and creating space on the north side, which would open up space on the south side for other uses. That decision has not yet been finalized, and we're in discussions with all three of our tenants plus other other groups. Um, with live nation and the use of, um, you know, space for artists and things of that kind. So there, are, there are different decisions that are, that are still, uh, having to be made with regards to what's going to happen on the North side, but one way or another, there's going to be significant activation there that has not taken place. It won't be left quite as blank as, as you would see it now, although it's certainly being used for a very important purpose. I mean, uh, the uh, obviously the clinic uh, is uh, is crucial. We all want to get through this so that we can we not need the clinic anymore and have those uh, those spaces opened up for great events where people congregate and come to uh, concerts and shows and everything else.
0: You have mentioned uh, before that if you look at uh, Roger Center for the Blue Jays when they ever play there, they've got the thing in center field where you can just wander around the flight deck, or you yes. have it now at Tim Hortons Field with the Stipley yep. Bar. You want to have something like that that would overlook the rink.
2: That's right. Um, one of the considerations that our architects and uh, all of the people that are working towards activation, we thank, uh, obviously, Live Nation and, and Spectra, who core entertainment that uh, manage the building, for having participated and continue to participate in this process. Uh, we, um, When you look at the west end of the arena, that's the, the main entrance off of Bay. A lot of space up there. That uh, comes in behind the uh, seats on the west side. Uh, that also looks at stage and, like when when concerts are held, the stages, in, unless it's in, what you call in the round, are generally on the the east end of the arena. And so something that uh, that is similar to or sort of evokes the concept of a party area where people can congregate and um, you know have their food and beverage items and everything else. On the west side, um, Brisbane Brook Bain is very excited about the prospects, and our uh, lead architects, Murray Bain and Chris O'Reilly, Tone uh, Frisina are very excited about the potential for what can be developed on the west end of the arena.
0: There are, uh, I think, First Ontario Centre officially seats something like 17,800 or something, I think, is the number. 17,
2: about this, uh, just under 17, depending on how it's set up, but it's approximately 17,300 seats, yeah.
0: All right, so would that stay, or do you see things changing if you have an open area for like a bar, a walk-around bar and boxes and everything and punching holes into the thing? Do you see the number going down? Is it going to be more intimate?
2: uh the the balcony is still there so even though the predominant amount of work that's being done is to create approximately 9000 premium seats with new suites and club areas um on the lower bowl but the balcony is still there so when fully uh, opened up and a new curtaining system retracted back if you're bringing in a a huge show like a Rage Against the Machine, which is going to be in July of 2022, um, when the when the building is fully opened up, uh, the seating capacity will be similar to to what it is now. There's not going to be a significant reduction or increase through the renovation. It's not so much that you're adding or subtracting; it's that you're changing the fan experience because of the nature of the amenities. So you're still, All right. going to end, uh, we expect it to be about the same.
0: All right, we have a couple more minutes left, and I said off the top about money. Now, when when the deal was made with the city, when the agreement was made with the city, with Hupeg, uh, with that's, the again, once again, the group, the consortium that's doing this, the, the amount mentioned was about $50 million to do this. But it sounds really expensive, a lot of the ideas that you're throwing out there, Jasper, and it sounds, I mean, looking at that, when you talked about the the study you did back five years ago, $68 million was the number that would have kind of seems similar to a lot of the stuff that you're doing now. Is it really 50 or can you do this for 50 or does it have to be more? Do you have to start cutting stuff to get it down to 50? The
2: $50 million figure was the figure that in the negotiations with city relative to the consideration we were receiving back was the minimum. And I emphasize the word minimum commitment we made. So we are committed to, and we will deliver a minimum $50 million renovation or transformation To the arena but that is our goal is to get beyond that and work is being done to to make that happen and there'll be more to come this won't be the last of the conversations obviously this is not um, the end of it it's just as as PJ said publicly said this is just the end of the beginning and we are confident that uh, once we are able to announce what the final plan for the arena renovation is it will be more than fifty million dollars. The level to which we're able to do that will depend on work that we're currently uh, engaged in and is underway and But even if fifty million fifty million dollars is a lot of money and can produce quite a significant renovation and change to the building. but our goal is to get beyond that and to deliver uh, you know everything that we that we're we really want to be able to to uh, leave behind in terms of a legacy for the renovation of this iconic and historic um, building in downtown Hamilton. Uh,
0: Ideally done by when? It'll
2: be a 2022, 23 uh, time schedule. Things are still having to be worked out in terms of working around the schedule of our respective tenants. That's why I, I, again, as I I would emphasize our discussions uh, with the, uh, bulldogs, the rock and the honey badgers. Uh, we don't want to disrupt schedules if possible. It'll likely not be possible. It will, it'll be very difficult not to have any disruption, but we want to minimize that to the extent possible. Brisbane Brook Bainan is, is tremendously, um, adept at being able to stage things. Uh, so they're, There will likely be, we believe there will be the the opportunity potentially to do a lot of the exterior work while still being able to accommodate events inside the building. For example, what we were talking about on York Boulevard, a lot of that work doesn't really touch um, portions of the building that need to be accessed for events. So we may be able to minimize the disruption to any schedules by doing that. But um, we'll see what the level of full building shutdown requirement is but we're looking at a 2022 and 2023 timeframe within which to have this work completed.
0: That is Jasper Kajafsky. He is the guy who is going to be in charge of redoing the arena when that construction starts. Listen, we really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this, Jasper.
2: Thank you very much, Scott. Really appreciate it.